welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. It's really a pleasure at this time to introduce Tony Barron. He's a friend of Pastor Michael, and he's been here before, and I loved his preaching. He's a leader in our family of churches, was a pastor for many years, and currently he's the dean of Azusa Seminary on San Diego's campus. One of the only people that I know that has two doctorates, and you have an extra one, so could you give me one? So he, he, I'm saying, he's an amazing thinker, author, and a Christian leader. And so I'd like to introduce Dr. Tony Barron. It's really funny, I have to tell you that um, Pastor Michael's been asking for a group of people to speak in this series, and, and he actually told us what the series was, and then Michael was so cute, not only did he tell us what he would like to have in this series, the series that deals with the subject of freedom, but that he actually gave us sermon tips of what we needed to do to communicate. And um, and so Michael covers all the bases, which I think is really great. I, I, I love him to bits. And... And then I found out who the other speakers were. So we had to decide what subjects we were going to cover during this series on freedom. He even gave titles for us, Let Freedom Ring or Learning to Be Free and all those kind of things that were. And he based it on because we, July 4th just happened, right? And we needed to understand what really genuine freedom means to walk in the Lord. And then he presented the speakers. And I looked at my calendar and this is the only time I could really speak. But then you get next week, and in next two weeks, you get Nigel Morris. Now, you've had Nigel before? Okay. So you know he speaks with a British accent, which makes him already, you know, 10, 20 points more brilliant than I am. Just the very fact that he can speak in a, in a British accent. And then Paul asked him, "Would you? do you need a stool like Dr. Baring to sit and preach? Now, Nigel is older than I am. So, and, and Paul told me he was deeply offended that that we asked him for a stool in, in that area. So if he asked for a stool, I just want you to have this small smile of what happened. But I, I don't guarantee, guarantee you will. And then the, we'll end up the series after Nigel speaks on two areas. The title is message, open eyes, open heart. His first part, part one, will be on Luke 24, and, and then Luke 4 will be the second part in terms of really setting the captives free, and what, what does that message mean for Jesus? And then we get the privilege of having um, a professor of philosophy, and you probably had him before, Greg Gensley? Gazel. Gazel. So... Um, and I've never met him, as you could probably tell. I, I didn't. But I love the title of what he's doing. He's going to take two other philosophers that really the world has bought into. And then he's going to compare it to Jesus Christ and what it means to for you and me to have true, genuine freedom in following Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? So I need you to do me a favor this morning. Because you've been so good the last couple of times I've been here. I've asked you to have discussions about awe and asked you to have other discussions that are involved. What I'd like you to do is think back in kind of the, your mind and use your imagination. When was the time in your life that you truly felt free? I mean, truly free. 
I can remember in second grade when Miss Phyllis told us, school is over, it's now summer school, and all the kids jumped up, and I ran about a block and a half to my house, screaming, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. Now, I can also remember other times in, in terms of freedom that, that you had and filled this great need. Uh, in fact, one time I was with Francis and Judith McNutt in their healing ministry. And through that three days of prayer, it was the most fantastic and wonderful, incredible time that I really felt on a spiritual side. I was so free of all the garbage and junk and all the things that I thought I dealt with, but really didn't. So take about a minute or so, share with someone next to you of a story of freedom that you've had, whether it's spiritually or whether it's uh, on a physical case or whether it's emotional. When did you feel free. Go ahead and share with one another. Okay, let's come together and share a little bit of, of freedom. How about on this side? Anybody have a story they want to share about how they felt truly free one time growing up? Yes, ma'am. Okay, speak up. And your daughter took you to the Bahamas and you felt truly free. Aren't vacations great? And especially when you go to tremendous places, you ask... No responsibility. I don't wake up by the clock. I don't have a boss I have to answer to. I can just enjoy myself through that. I said, <laughs> now that's a sign of freedom when you're jumping on the bed of the hotel room. Thank you so much. How about over here, a story of freedom? Yes, sir. That was freedom. I can't tell you how many educators have said that. When they leave, in fact, by the way, I'm retiring August 14th from APU in, in the seminary, and, and though I'll still be teaching adjunct there in Northern Seminary and some other places, um, there is a sense of when you're retiring or leaving, there's a sense of freedom, isn't it? You, you, and I, I didn't look forward to it initially thinking about it because the primary reason I was going to retire because my wife has been ill, but it, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm going, I think I'm going to start jumping on the bed August 15th or something like that. So educators get that. How about over here? Anybody, a story? You have no story? Okay, we'll go right over here. Yes. It's an incredible feeling, isn't it, to be free? I mean, truly feel free. I, I heard some of the conversations, and I heard one person say, I don't really know when, when I felt free. And I don't know if that's true of others that have experienced that. But let me ask you a question. What stops us from experiencing true freedom? Because the Bible says in Galatians 5, 1, that the purpose of Christ's coming is for freedom. So what stops us? If we, if we were honest right now, what stops you and me from actually feeling and living free. Okay, fear, self, yes, oppression. All those are true. Yes. Awareness of sin. Awareness of sin. So sometimes for many of us it could be guilt or maybe even shame. Not only guilt, I did something wrong, but experiencing shame in our lives that I'm just not worthy expectations. Performance-driven aspects, the sign of being a perfectionist, of doing things, trying to achieve certain aspects of there. And i got to be really honest with you. Everything that you have said in terms of the things that have hindered my freedom are things that have happened in my life. 
I'm that old. And one of the things that we need to realize is the Bible's very much committed to you and me to talk about freedom, but freedom has a deep psychological, or uh, being fearful has a deep psychological impact on us, don't you think? In fact, what often happens to us, we begin to look at society and we see the political upheaval that happens in our society because of a leadership crisis. And we're so tired as we watch the news because nobody seems to get it right. Or maybe there's economic instability on a personal level, or we begin to see it in terms of countries and trying to say, how can we support or how can we make ends meet? And and so there's a fear maybe we just can't survive in terms of economic reasons that are there. Or we're seeing in our society a social disorder. Have you noticed that? Kind of this lack of foundational truth, foundational aspects. And so we feel like we're on sinking sand in where we live. Or we begin to see religious confusion and some aspects of oppression. The beginning in terms of how people really think about faith or how they think about their journey. And they realize that some of the complex issues of their faith are simply more complex for them to realize is just faith that saves everything that they do. And so as a result of that life that we live in, the context that we live in, the the land of what's called the in-between, where we begin to live that kind of life, it's so easy for you and for me to manifest fear. And we can put it in other words, worry, anxiety, doubt. It's the Greek word phobos, which is the idea of phobia, that we live sometimes with fear in our lives. So that's why the passage before us in the Old Testament is going to be so very important. I, I chose it deliberately because this person was not a weakling in faith. This person had a tremendous amount of gifts in believing that God can do tremendous things. This person was called by God to be a prophet, to speak the voice of God, and he demonstrated his faithfulness. And did you notice in the reading of the scripture that he says that I am very zealous for the things of God? In fact, God kept asking him, why are you here? Why are you in this place? What's going on? And Elijah kept saying, I am very zealous. And if you read in the Hebrew, it's emphatic. He's saying, God, don't you get it? I am really, really, absolutely, without a shadow of doubt, I am zealous and diligent for your very name. And yet when we read the passage in 1 Kings chapter 19, we begin to understand that the Bible says, because of this woman named Jezebel, by the way, have you noticed that we don't name our kids Jezebel? <laughs> that obviously tells you that's probably a bad person to begin with. But the wife of Ahab, Jezebel, who led Ahab to worship false gods, Jezebel said, what you did, Elijah, to the prophets of Baal, I'm going to do to you. And this man of God who did so many great works for God the Bible says he feared. He feared. If you have your Bibles, why don't we turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. In fact, if you do turn over there, let's just turn left a little bit to 1 Kings chapter 18 because we begin to see 
all the tremendous miracles that Elijah did. Remember the widow's son, uh, that they were, uh, um, the widow, she was lacking food, and, and Elijah did a miracle and, and supplied food for the family. And then a little later, what happened was the son died. And Elijah was used by God as a miracle to resurrect the child before them, to uplift that child and have the child live. And then he is called in the situation in 1 Kings chapter 18, and he gives this great challenge to the priests of Baal. Now, you have to understand that Baal is a god of fertility. It's a god that gives nourishment and life and all those things, the false gods, and the people worship that kind of God. There's numerous gods, but now there was a drought in that section of land, a severe drought. And so the priests of Baal would say, what happened is that Baal is no longer here to serve us. He's actually in the underworld, and the God of death is holding him imprisoned. And that's why he would tell the kings, this is why we have the drought. And so Elijah makes this mockery and this severe famine that's in Samaria. And he believes totally and completely with God. And he tells the people of Israel, because Israel wanted a little bit of God. Have you know people like that? They just wanted a little bit of God, maybe a little spoonful of God to make the medicine go down, right? But they also wanted what Baal had. They wanted everything. They wanted to live the secular life, and then they wanted a little bit of the sacred life so they can say that they're the people of God. In fact, in the Hebrew, it says here, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? Literally, how long are you going to limp around on two crutches? You don't even need these crutches. How long, people of Israel, are you going to limp around on these two crutches that are going on? And it's not because they were physically hurt. It was because there were people that were indecisive of the choice they make and who they would do. And so you know the miracle. Remember in 1 Kings 18? What Elijah would do is tell the people of Baal to go ahead, get your two oxen, let let them loose on there, cut them up, place them on the wood, put it under there, and then call on the name of your God and let the God who answered burn them up as a sacrifice. And it wouldn't happen. Nothing happened. And so what the uh, the priests of Baal did, they would cut themselves, self-mutilation. And they did that as a sign, a ritual of mourning, as they were beseeching the God of death to release Baal into the world for them to supply more of their needs, more of their ways. And Elijah, bless his heart, he was mocking them. Is your God asleep? Maybe he hasn't even heard you. And that God, that Elijah was so convinced that God is all-sustaining, all-sufficient, a God of miracles who made the heavens and the earth, the God who can do all things, ask the people to splash water and do drench it with water over the oxen. And then he beseeched God to send a fire down, and what do you think happened? God did it. So why in the world do you think that when it came to a little bitty woman named Jezebel, that the Bible says he was afraid. I think it's the same reason my dad struggled 
with his faith. My dad, I told you, I think last time or the time before that, was a prisoner of war in Poland, in German war camps. And my dad believed he was a practicing, faithful individual, but when he was in a prison camps in Germany, he was convinced that God would get him out, that there'd be a miracle that would happen in that area. People told of miraculous things that have happened during the war. I think he thought a little bit like Elijah that the only way that God works, the only way that God brings freedom in your life and in my life is through the miraculous. That is, God does it all, and we do nothing. Because Elijah was used by God to do it all. God did it all. But when we come to 1 Kings chapter 19, all of a sudden Elijah's losing another perspective that there's a second way that God works in our life. If you read the passage in 1 Kings chapter 19, we begin to realize that Elijah was so scared of Jezebel that he went to the southernmost part of Judah in the southern kingdom. He went completely to the other side. And he's pleading Take my life, God. And God responds in 1 Kings chapter 19 is, what are you doing here? And then God gives him some sustenance, and he takes the sustenance. And then later on, he comes and he goes over to uh, spend time there to move. And he finally takes 40 days and 40 nights, about 400 miles. He travels to Mount Sinai. Scripture call it Horeb here to experience God. But in that journey of 1 Corinthians chapter 19, I think there's a second lesson how God works. That God doesn't just do it all. That sometimes God does his part, but we have to do our part. It's not really God helps those who help themselves. But it's a recognition that God does his part, but he's expecting you to walk in obedience for you to do your part. Salvation's like that, isn't it? Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, that was his part that he has. But your part is living through that grace by faith and placing your trust and your life into him and to confess him as Lord and Savior. Spiritual formation works that way, too. That you can't be a mature believer in Jesus Christ unless God does his part and you do your part. For example, God wants you to give you all the faith that you could possibly handle. But you still have to experience not only trust in this all-unbelievable God, but you actually have to have death to self. Not death of self, but death to self. I want you to think about that. The only way that you can increase your faith and experience agape love, the only way that you can live in sufficiency and being content in all that God provides you is through death to self. The Bible says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but what? Christ who lives in me. Every time you see Jesus on the cross, imagine yourself right there that I have been crucified with Christ if I want to live in the spiritual formation and gain more faith to understand his sufficiency. 
But then we come to the third part over here, because Elijah experienced all the fear and the depression and the hopelessness that is there. And all of a sudden, God does some amazing things. The Bible says, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rendering the mountains, just tearing the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After an earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing, literally a soft whisper. God wasn't in the sound bites. He was actually in the silent spice. That 7,300 feet up in a Mount Sinai, God does all these miraculous things, but he's even more important and greater than all those miraculous things. And he's in the silence, that soft whisper. And still Elijah doesn't get it. God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you living in your self-pity? Why are you living feeling hurt and depressed? Why are you feeling such anguish that you don't think I even care? And this tells us the third way that God works in our life for us to be free. The first part is God does it all and we do nothing. The second part is God does some of the things, but we have to do some of our things. But the third part is this, and this is really hard for most of us, that God doesn't change the circumstances of your situation at all. But in that process, he's still changing you. Are you with me? Many times when you're pleading and you're praying and you're anxious and you're doing all the things that are there, what God wants you to know, I still haven't left you. I am still there. I'm still part of that whisper. But I'm going to allow those things to happen out there because my goal is to mold you. I'm in the people molding business because you will be immortal and you will live forever. And there's a greater plan that's involved. Freedom comes in trusting this all-sufficient, unbelievable God who can do, make the heavens and the earth, to do the stars and align them in the right way, to do courses of miracle, to feed the 5,000, to do all the things that are there. We need to trust in that all-sufficient God But that's not the only way he works, my friends. My dad never got it. That sometimes God works that we have to do our part when he does his part. And sometimes God just lets it happen. He just lets it happen. And you've seen that in life, haven't you? But I want you to know when he lets it happen, he's there. He's present. He never leaves you. Paul asked me uh, 
to give the scriptures that I wanted. So I did give 1 Corinthians 18 and 19 and Matthew 10. But I also told him I would love to have Psalm 23. You love Psalm 23, right? Just, I mean, really, really believe it for a second. Don't have it just memorized. Really believe it. Now listen to the words just quietly. The Lord is my shepherd. It's almost like you may have other shepherds. The world may have other shepherds. All the gurus of life, all the secularists of life and all this. I want you to know the the Lord is my shepherd. What? I shall not want. You know what that means? That means the Lord is my shepherd. I have no need. It's what Paul talked about, I'm content in all things. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I know as a shepherd, he will always take care of me, so I, I, he's in charge of my life. I don't want, I'm not in charge. And because I know he loves me and cares for me, I have no need. You know the rest, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Why is he doing that? Because of his abundance. As a sheep, you're just laying down in the green pastures. You're enjoying it. You've already had your full. He leads me besides still waters or quiet waters. I'm not thirsty anymore. He restores my soul. Your soul banged up for a while? The Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. He guides me into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then I love this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I've walked through the valleys of the shadow of death. I lost a son. Even though. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. And do you know what it says? Because you are with me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I ask some people, what's that mean to you? And a lot of them said to me, you know what that means? Is that God's going to make it right for me, and so all my enemies are going to be around, and I can say, ha ha, look at all the food I got. That's not what the passage means. It means that he provides so much it prepares the table before you that you're actually giving it to people that are your enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy, loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let me just share some scriptures about fear. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So let me just close with two applications. One is wake up. And what I mean by that, I, I've been reading this book called The Question of God by Sigma. It's a, a professor, a medical professor from Harvard Medical School. It's the most popular class in, in Harvard Medical School. And he used to do a study on Sigmund Freud. And then he decided to get an, another viewpoint because Sigmund Freud did not believe in God. So he, he did the study of Freud and C.S. Lewis. And he had, and it's so popular at Harvard Medical School that it is, it's by far the most popular class. And he begins because Lewis was an atheist and he addresses all the issues that Freud did that helped Lewis become a deep believer of which many of you have read those books. And he would say, if I was to sum up Sigmund Freud's philosophy was, hey, grow up. Life happens. And then there's death and that's it. Just grow up and deal with it. There isn't any God. There isn't anything after that. Life really sucks. Freud didn't say that. That was my paraphrase. But C.S. Lewis would say, if you were to sum it up, no, my friends, wake up. Wake up to realize the powerful power of God that is there and see around you his handiwork, his sustenance, his all-sufficiency. Wake up. And then, fear not. Jesus said it 14 times in the Gospels. 88 times is found in the Bible, fear not. 11 years ago last week, Stephen Chapman did a concert. Because earlier, two months earlier, 11 years ago, a tragedy happened to his adopted um, daughter, Maria. Maria was struck and killed when Chapman's 17-year-old son at that time was backing his SUV out of the family's driveway. Chapman was wondering, God, why didn't you spare it? Spare us. I mean, a little girl. And then my son's going to have to live with that all his life. Listen to these words. It's not often you leave a concert reflecting on the words of a song by a different artist, but as I exited the July 24, 2008, Stephen Curtis Chapman event, the words of Matt Redmond's worship song echo through my head. Chapman opened this concert with Blessed Be Your Name just two months after the death of his five-year-old daughter, Maria Sue, in a tragic accident. Blessed Be Your Name was also the first song Chapman sang May 21st, the day of Maria's death, when he wasn't sure he was able to ever to sing again. Inspired by the story of Job, at one point the lyrics repeat, he gives and takes away, he gives and takes away. As I sang this song, it wasn't a song, it was a cry, a scream, a prayer, he explains to the audience of 5,000. I found amazing comfort and peace that surpasses all understanding. And then he wrote, wrote an additional stanza. I walked the valley of this shadow so deep and dark that it could barely breathe. I had to let go of more than I could bear, and I've questioned everything that I believe. Still, even here in this great darkness, a comfort and a hope comes breaking through. As I can say in life or death, God, we bring to you. You belong to God.
You and I belong to God in such an incredible way that he's always there with you, no matter the circumstances. Some of you today may be angry because God did nothing. Wounded because of it. When we come to the altar, there's a prayer team. I encourage you that when you come to the altar, this is the day that you say, I'm going to give that to you, God. And then go to the prayer team. This is the day that can change your life. I wish my dad knew that. That God works in many ways, but these three are so important that he changes you and me, but he's always there. Amen. I'd like to close with a prayer, if you don't mind, by Dallas Willard, who was my mentor for 20 years before he passed away, as he was a mentor to so many. Just listen to the words of his opening prayer here, his prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we're so thankful to you that you have said, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We are thankful for the ease for which we walked upon this earth, the generosity and kindness you showed to people, the devotion with which you cared for those who were out of the way and in trouble, the extent to which you even loved your enemies and laid down your life for them. We are so thankful to believe that this is life for us, a life of sufficiency, a life without lack. It's so clear in you the sufficiency of your Father and the fullness of life that was poured through you. And we're so thankful that you have promised that same love, that same life, that same joy, that same power for us. Lord, slip up on us today. Get past our defenses, our worries, our concerns. Gently open our souls and speak your word into them. We believe you want to do it, and we wait for you to do it now. In your name, amen.